Hello, and welcome to Building Local Power. I'm Stacy Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We have a very special show for you today. My guest is Barry Lynn. Barry, I think it's fair to say, is the founding father of today's fast-growing movement against monopolies. Barry's been working on this issue for more than 15 years. In that time, he's been the Paul Revere warning us of the dangers of concentrated economic power and the Thomas Jefferson articulating a framework for understanding and responding to this threat, and the Abigail Adams quietly influencing the thinking of those around him. The result is that there is a new movement afoot that seeks to wrest control of our country back from corporate monopolies, and it's gaining momentum. Today on the show, Barry and I are going to talk first about how we got to this point and then turn to the important question of where we go from here. I first met Barry 10 years ago when I had just published a book called Big Box Swindle about how Walmart and other big retailers were taking over our economy. One of the central things I explored in that book was this question of what the hell had happened to our antitrust laws. At the time, Walmart was marching across the country and it was employing tactics like predatory pricing and price discrimination to crush the competition. These tactics are illegal. I looked up the laws and yet the laws weren't being used to check Walmart's power. The same year I published that book, Barry wrote a terrific essay in Harper's Magazine called Breaking the Chains, the antitrust case against Walmart. So Barry and I found we had a lot to talk about. In 2010, Barry produced a book that's a favorite of ours here at ILSR. It's called Cornered, the New Monopoly Capitalism and the Economics of Destruction. He then went on to write a series of deeply reported articles about how monopolies are pushing down wages, stifling innovation, and killing job creation. His pieces have also tracked the political currents around monopoly policy, including how the Democratic Party had lost its way on this issue and how that failure may have contributed to the election of Donald Trump. Barry published many of his most important pieces in Washington Monthly, an underappreciated magazine that should be in your rotation if it's not already. Barry is the executive director of the Open Markets Institute. He joins us today from our Washington, D.C. office. Barry, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, I must say, you have been working with me for uh, pretty much since the beginning. So uh, uh, I did help to pioneer this, but I think you get just about equal credit for pioneering uh, where we are today. Well, that's uh, too kind of you, but I appreciate it. And it's been uh, just so terrific to see this really take off in the in the last few months. Um, and now the real work begins, right? So uh, it's good. Um, so I want to ask, I talked a little bit in, in the intro about how I came to be thinking about this issue. I want to ask how you came to be thinking about it. Yeah, I came to think about or actually see America... America's concentration problem, America's monopoly problem, in somewhat of a roundabout way. I ran a, used to run a magazine called Global Business, and this was back in the 1990s. And this was a major magazine back in those days. Uh, but what I uh, did is I had never studied anything about concentration. I hadn't studied competition policy. Uh, but what sort of got me sort of walking down this pathway was there was an earthquake in Taiwan in 1999, in September 21. And uh, there was a disruption to the production system. All of a sudden, all of these factories in the United States shut down. And I said, well, why did these factories shut down in the United States if there's a, when there's an earthquake in Taiwan on the other side of the world? And it turned out that all of a certain kind of semiconductor was being made in this one town in, in, in Taiwan named Sinju uh, and then being exported out to all the rest of the world. 
So in essence, it's like uh, what I saw with that one earthquake was that uh, human beings as a, as, a, as a society, we'd put all of these really important eggs in one basket. And uh, so it was at that moment, and I, I wrote a first book, which is called End of the Line, and that was about sort of uh, supply chain crashes, and it was about the the effects of concentration on this, the, the uh, functioning of complex systems. And... Uh, but what I really came to understand in writing that first book, and this is really a, it was a too big to fail type thesis that I was dealing with, was that the reason that we saw the, this cascading failure of a supply system was because everything had been concentrated in one place. And that's what led me to look at changes in how, especially here in the United States, but pe also people all around the world uh, did their competition policy, how we think about monopoly how we protect ourselves against monopoly, or as the case may uh, actually is, how we don't protect ourselves against monopoly or the concentration of risk the way we used to. You know, it's really interesting about these hidden monopolies in the supply chain, because I think most people, they encounter some monopolies in their lives that they recognize for what they are. You know, maybe the cable company, you know, I think 75% of all households have at most one choice for broadband internet. Um, they see it in the airlines, especially if you live in a small city like I do, where you have like one choice about, you know, which airline to fly to a given destination. Maybe they see Walmart's power. But one of the things you've written about are all these things that are hidden monopolies to people. You talked a little bit about the, the supply chain ones, but there are other kinds of hidden monopolies that live behind what seems like a lot of choice, the sort of veneer of choice. Can you talk about what some of those are? Yeah, there's a, one that I wrote about in, in Corner, and this is a story that's gotten a lot of attention, uh, actually including last night on uh, John Oliver. Uh, but uh, And what I wrote about was this company called Luxottica, which is an eyeglass manufacturer. But they're actually a lot more than being an eyeglass manufacturer because what happened is they realized that in order to sell more eyeglasses, one way to do that would be to buy up all of the retailers. So at some point, uh, you, know, a, you know, more than a decade ago, uh, this, this Italian company called Luxottica came to the United States and they, and they started to buy a whole bunch of retailers. They bought uh, lens crafters, they bought Pearl Vision, they uh, provided services to uh, all the federated stores, Macy's, they provided uh, uh, eyeglass services for all of the Target stores, uh, they owned Sunglass Hut. Uh, so in this, you know, here's a company where, you know, if you go to the mall, because you know people still tend to buy their glasses in a physical location. Uh, you walk around in your town, you may see a whole bunch of different places selling eyeglasses, but what you don't know is that they're all owned by this one company called Luxottica, and Luxottica is steering all of your business to their factories, uh, and uh, so that the entire uh, sense that you have that you are operating within an open market and there's competition for your business uh, is, a, is, a, is a myth. It's, a, it's, a, it's an illusion. It's amazing. And the, the supermarket ones also are phenomenal to me. You walk down the dairy aisle and you think, oh, I have all these choices for milk. You walk down the beer aisle and you think, oh, I have all these choices. It turns out all those brands are owned essentially by two companies, right? Yes, there's really there's two companies that control almost all of mil the milk business in the United States. And in many cases, they they trade off their control so that if you go into one particular store, you may just be dealing with one particular company. I remember going into this one Walmart, uh, this was down in Tennessee, and there were maybe eight different brands of milk. 
when I left, I wrote down all those different, um, uh, uh, the brand, every one of those brand names, I wrote it down. And then when I left, I started Googling. And I discovered that every one of those brands was all controlled by just one company. All that milk at all these different price points, uh, it was all being sold by one company. It's, it's amazing. Um, I think one of the things I really like about your work is that you've helped us recover a history that had been lost. You know, we have this incredibly robust anti-monopoly history, uh, and yet from the view of today, a lot of that history has been obscured or lost. The example that when I was doing working on Big Box Swindle and first really kind of looking into this issue, I went back to look at the origins of the country and the stuff that the founding fathers said and so on. Um, and I was really, to, to the, the Boston Tea Party was the one that so struck me at that time. I ended up writing about it in the book because it's the story that we all learn about how the colonists didn't like taxes and so they dumped tea into the harbor, right? Um, but no, it turns out that in fact, there's this big company, the East India Company, the kind of global conglomerate of its time, uh, which as all monopolies do, had a very close relationship with the British Parliament and uh, had gotten itself into trouble through some bad choices that it made. It was losing money, in danger of going under, and Parliament stepped in and said, well, we'll lift the duty on taxes. You can go sell all your tea in the American colonies. We'll charge all those local tea merchants over there taxes, but you don't have to pay them. And so when the colonists went and dumped 46 tons of tea into Boston Harbor, it was really a protest about monopoly, about corporate power, and about the relationship between corporate power and political power. And I just, that was so eye-opening for me to discover. And then in reading your work over the years, sort of learned more and more about how this history has actually played out and that the period that we've been living in for the last 30 years, 40 years or so, is really a departure. So I was wondering if you could help our listeners by telling us how our federal antitrust policies initially came about, which I think the earliest ones at the federal level are really in the 19th century. And before that, economic power had been uh, uh, controlled at the state level. So what was it that led to the national policies? And, and what are sort of the key milestones in that process of building up those laws? Yeah, as you mentioned, America, in many respects, was born out of a rebellion against monopoly, the British East India Company. There are letters from 1773 signed by people like Sam Adams and John Hancock in which they're saying the, the problem with this company is not simply that they're screwing with our commerce. The problem with this company is that they are a threat to our liberties. And so... You know, uh, so America, in many respects, was was born out of rebellion against monopoly. It was born to, I mean, people created the country to ensure that they had liberty as individuals to sell their own products and their own labor uh, to anyone that they wanted to within their own societies in, in open markets. And so, the, you know, at the at, at the beginning, the idea was no one is going to tell me who I can sell my goods to and my labor to, and no one's going to tell me at what prices. We're going to just figure it out among our own selves, liberty. You know, over time, we kind of understood that, you know, monopoly was also a threat to our democracy, you know, our democratic institutions. You allow people to concentrate wealth, concentrate power, concentrate control, and uh, when you allow that, then your democratic institutions are 
almost inevitably put at risk. So we're going to fight monopoly to preserve democracy. Over time, Americans also understood, and this is actually, you know, is uh, what your institution is doing such a great job of of uh, of promoting this idea today is that it, you know, communities, Americans wanted each community to be self-governing, the people in each every community to govern the commerce within that community. So monopoly, people understood, was a threat to uh, the sovereignty of the people within a community, our ability to do with our community what we will. So Americans did a fantastic job over most of our history at preserving liberty, democracy, community through the use of, of anti-monopoly law. You know, as you mentioned, uh, initially, uh, this was easy to do at the state level, at the local level. What happened over time is a new technologies came along, the railroad, the telegraph, and this allowed people to project power over space in ways that had not been possible before. So, you know, thanks to the railroad, thanks to the telegraph, you saw these corporate powers escape the control of state powers um, that had the state powers that had regulated them, you know, up to that point. So in the 18, 1888, 1890, you saw a set of uh, the first federal anti-monopoly laws being passed. So the first ones were uh, the Interstate uh, Commerce Act was designed to protect uh, people who were shipping things uh, from the power of the railroads. And then the second one was the Sherman Antitrust Act, and that was in 1890. And that was a, a more general anti-monopoly law, and that was designed to break what people saw as cartels, uh, which were the, you know, at that point were the first real super corporations in which people would blend multiple corporations into a single entity. Uh, so that was, you know, from that point forward, uh, most anti-monopoly policy has been pursued at the federal level because uh, most uh, commerce in the United States uh, takes place across state borders. And we often talk about uh, Teddy Roosevelt as being a trust buster, but uh, I think there are some later presidents that actually maybe even had a more influential role. Uh, who stands out in your mind? You know, the people who were most responsible for the modern anti-monopoly regime, the, the, the regime that was in place through most of the 20th century, uh, that was um, uh, Justice Louis Brandeis. Uh, I mean, uh, Brandeis was put onto the court by President Wilson. He was appointed to the court by President Wilson in 1916. Uh, in 1912 and 1913, uh, Brandeis was a close advisor to uh, candidate Wilson and President Wilson. Uh, and together, the two of them really sort of established a language. They, they, uh, they kind of resurrected, uh, renovated, uh, updated, modernized the language of Jefferson and Madison for the industrial era you know, of, the 20, of the 20th century. And then in the 1930s, we had a couple of other people who were major players in this. And there were many people, but two others who were really important were FDR. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt was, in a way that was, more so than almost any of his advisors, really understood anti-monopoly. And, and just delivered some of the most important speeches and pursued some of the most important actions uh, in the 1930s. And, and altogether, by the end of the 1930s, you had in place the, the regime that w w would remain in place until Ronald Reagan began to take it apart in the early 1980s. And it was that regime, that sort of antitrust uh, uh, system that was put in place 
beginning more than 100 years ago uh, with the election of 1912, uh, really accelerating in the 1930s, uh, that approach to competition policy, to breaking up power, neutralizing power, that was more than anything else responsible for the fantastic prosperity and spread of liberty that we saw in the United States through the heart of the 20th century. All those fat decades of the 1940s, 50s, 60s, I mean, that's the period when anti-monopoly policy is at its strongest, right? Talk about how that unraveled. I mean, because here you had these really solid uh, public policies that served these deeply held core values of liberty, of equality, of democracy, and they worked. I mean, you had an economy that did quite well with a lot of innovation, rising middle class, uh, shrinking gap between the rich and poor, you know, women and people of color still not uh, fully allowed in, but making big progress in those years. You know, anti-monopoly wasn't maybe the only factor, but it clearly was a huge one. So how is it that given that history and the effectiveness of those policies, how did that begin to come undone? How do we get to Reagan's election and he can flip a switch and turn these things off and no one does anything about it? I mean, that's a great question. And that's really the key question to understanding what went wrong in America. I mean, we know that in the early days of the Reagan administration, he and his people targeted unions. That was a big deal. Uh, unions are actually part of competition policy. You know, the idea is like, we're going to make it easier for the worker to get together and, and, and join his or her labor with his or her colleagues in a way that allows them to equalize their bargaining power with a corporation. Uh, so that's always been part of competition po policy properly understood. So the Reagan people went after unions right at the beginning. We know that. We've told that story. But what they also did, and what, this is a story we haven't talked about, is they went after anti-monopoly pretty much as we had done it in America going back to 1773. And that what they said is rather than using our anti-monopoly law to protect our liberty, to protect our democracy, to protect our communities, to protect innovation, we should use anti-monopoly law to promote our welfare as consumers. The, the result of promoting our welfare uh, as consumers will, is that we're going to get more stuff. We're going to get more material things. And the way to measure that, we're going to measure it by price. And actually, we're not even going to really measure it. We're just going to take people's word for it. If you come to us and you say, we're going to make uh, a merger, and, uh, and if you can make a reasonable case that a merger is going to, that you're going to use the power from this merger to cut prices, we're going to let you do that merger. And if you happen to go organically the way Walmart did, we're going to leave you alone as long as you can make this case that you're lowering prices. Just kind of at a stroke. And they did this by just changing the guidelines that are used to interpret all anti-monopoly laws. They kind of changed the philosophy that we use to understand our anti-monopoly laws. At a stroke, they just took this whole rich body of law and they turned it on its head and they essentially turned it into a tool of the monopolist, of he who seeks to concentrate power and control over others. So as long as those companies are offering a veneer of choice and the appearance of low prices, at least in the short term, 
we traded our liberty, our democracy, and all of the rest of it for that. All of the rest of it. All of the things that America was built to protect. Everything that was most important for the citizen. We traded all that way for a few pennies worth of stuff. And where was Congress when this was happening? I mean, partly where was the Democratic Party, but also, I mean, there were Republicans who got this stuff too. It's, I mean, we have a history of, con of at least some conservatives uh, being supporters of this. So how did Reagan do this? I mean, what was Congress up to at the time? Did they just miss it or did they, what happened? I mean, that's a great question because it's like, why do, how do we miss this kind of revolution? I mean, here we had this revolution in America back in 1773, and we studied that. You know, when we think about it, it was revolution against monopoly. So 200 years later, a group of people came in and engaged in a counter-revolution to overturn the prohibitions against monopoly and allow, in, in ways that would allow the rich and the powerful to concentrate control over the rest of us. There were a number of people in Congress who noticed that something was up. There was a group of senators, uh, uh, Howard Metzenbaum was one of them, Arlen Specter, a Republican, uh, who said, hey, what is going on here? This is outrageous. This is wrong. We have to do something about it. Uh, they were not able to concentrate sufficient power to stand up to the Reagan administration at that time. Uh, one of the reasons, this is a, a, an important factor, is uh, one of the, the confounding uh, factors was that when the Chicago schoolers on the right, when the, the people promoting wealth, consumer welfare uh, came to this uh, in the Republican Party uh, and promoted these changes in the Reagan administration, there was a group of folks on the left who said, Amen. And uh, this was a group of folks that it was really from the command and control socialist left. It was the command and control left. Uh, and you say, okay, when in America did we ever have a command and control left? There was, we actually had a very powerful intellectually and a very influential command and control left uh, that uh, sort of in the 1960s and 70s uh, was led by a thinker, uh, an economist, uh, a writer who was very famous in those years called John Kenneth Galbraith. And John Kenneth Galbraith sort of, his whole philosophy was that, well, what you do is you let the, the rich and the powerful concentrate control over entire parts of the political economy, and then we stick the government on top of it, and we make sure, we use experts to sort of regulate the system, to sort of command the, the capitalists to do the right thing, and it all ends up good for the, the, for the people. So it was the command and control left provided the cover for the command and control right to concentrate the power that we have seen concentrated in this country. You're listening to Barry Lynn, Executive Director of the Open Markets Institute and a leading thinker on anti-monopoly. I'm Stacy Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We'll be right back with more of this conversation after a short break. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know that we don't have any corporate sponsors who pay to put ads on this show. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to carry ads from national companies. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. 
Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us to produce all the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots groups. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the donate button. That's ILSR.org. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. One great thing you can do is to rate and review this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ratings help us reach a wider audience, so it's hugely helpful when you do that. Thanks. So when all those changes happened in the 80s, and there was this revolution in how we uh, looked at antitrust from a policy perspective, Reagan, Galbraith, all of that, it's amazing how much that ideology blinds people in power to what's really going on, or at least gives them cover not to look. And what's so striking to me about this issue is how much people on the ground, how much small business owners, farmers, and others out there encounter monopoly power all the time. Um, you know, I hear it from all sorts of people. I, I'm sure you talk to people all over the country for whom this is true, whether they're brewing beer or driving a taxi cab or whatever it may be. They are at the losing end of monopolies who are simply using their size and power to crush competition and do so in ways that harm our, wel- our welfare uh, across the board. And yet, you federal regulators, people in power, have this ideological view that allows them to live in, I think, a kind of fantasy land where these things aren't actually happening. They, they allow their ideology to form how they see the world as opposed to allowing reality to inform how they think about the world. This has been going on for a long time where small business owners have been sort of dismissed, but it seems like reality is maybe beginning to overwhelm this sort of misguided set of notions that have overwhelmed policy for so long. Yeah, no, absolutely. We are seeing change, real change for the first time. And, you know, what is that change? Uh, Actually, the most important part of that change is seeing the monopoly problem. And to put it bluntly, what it is is seeing that this is a is concentrated power that we are facing. This is not an economic problem. It's a political economic problem. Our rights are being taken from us. As I mentioned before, our liberty is being taken from us. Our democracy is being destroyed. When monopolists concentrate power, they are basically concentrating a fist. And they are putting that fist in our face. And they are using that fist to make us cower. They're using that fist to make us accept lower wages. They use that fist to force higher prices on us. They use that fist to get us to work longer hours. They use that fist to push bad drugs on our children. Monopolists use that fist to kill people, and they use that fist to concentrate more and more control in their own hands. Now, what the economists of the last generation did what the Chicago schoolers did, the, the real sort of magic that they sort of managed to achieve is when they came in with this consumer welfare frame that we talked about, is one of the things they did is uh, when they were creating the consumer welfare frame, uh, they basically managed to lop off the word political from political economy. They said in this new world, 
this is uh, that antitrust it's not a matter of politics it's not a matter of people using uh, uh, our combined power of our votes uh, and our voices to af affect the world around us through congress uh, this is entirely a matter of science uh, so when we're trying to like promote our interests as, as, as consumers uh, we have to approach this scientifically and we need to have specially trained economists and lawyers study this and no one else should actually be involved in this and actually you can look at this Robert Bork who is the father of this whole movement in his book the antitrust paradox right at the beginning he says this is a science and basically sort of asserting that it was a science the goal of this and they actually achieved this goal was to hide the, the fist that was in our face so here we have been for 30 years beaten day after day by these people with, you know, who have concentrated power against us, and they use that power against us. And yet somehow, these people have tricked us into not seeing the fist that is beating us. So now, thank goodness, the American people at last, and, uh, and many of our representatives in Congress are waking up to the fact that this fist of power has been concentrated against us. And, you know, as you said, it's like at a certain point, just the mere facts get to, you know, up to the pile of facts is so large that you just can't, you cannot uh, ignore it anymore. So we, uh, we're now at the point where the, the, the pile of facts is such that the American people and our representatives are waking up and seeing that this whole ideology that was conjured out of nothing and sort of, you know, used to trick us into giving up these tools that we had built over the course of 200 years, uh, that, it's just, that was a giant lie. We're starting to form our own fingers into a fist. Mm -hmm. Why do you think the issue of monopoly has caught fire right now? What is, it, what is that pile of reality that is catching up on this issue? There's a whole bunch of, you know, you and I have been doing this for a long time, and we've seen all of these different effects. And we, we know that it means, you know, higher prices for certain goods, and it means, you know, uh, less choice. And, you know, when you teach people, you know, you've been doing journalism and outreach, and uh, uh, you've, you know, your team has written really terrifically important papers, like that big report you did on Amazon. Uh, getting these papers published, getting them out there, connecting them together with other people's papers, you know, just providing a the providing the facts for people to see by themselves providing the analysis for, for people to see uh, all the work that you have been doing and that members of my team has been doing and uh, other teams around around Washington and around America uh, that's you know that preponderance of fact that we have built up uh, is having a real effect you know, this has been the muckraking period. We've all been raking the muck and, and pulling the truth out of the muck. And, and now at this point, people see it. Before you can ever really deal with the problem, you have to see it. Uh, so that's where we are now is we're at the point where people see the problem. The other factor that is really starting to uh, have an effect is, you know, 10 years ago, you and I were talking about Walmart. Uh, but there are still a lot of different sectors of the political economy uh, in which there were large companies. What we're now seeing is a whole second stage of monopolization in which three giants, super giants, Google, Facebook, and Amazon, are concentrating power that even makes Walmart scared. Mm -hmm. So there's this whole second stage of consolidation that's taking place today. Uh, that is leading to a number of people to say, not only do we have a problem, 
But given the power these companies have, we better start acting now. It's also striking how bad the economy is for most people. And I'm, I'm, I say that mindful of your right thinking that this is really ultimately an issue about power and about controlling the future of our communities. I mean, I think both of those things out there, both this sense that we have lost control over our own destinies at the local level, that we no longer have in our communities the capacity and the authority to shape our own future. I think a lot of the despair that's out there is being driven by that. But it's also striking uh, as well, these deep problems in the economy, whether it's the failure to generate enough jobs or how precarious so many of those jobs are. I mean, people working in the gig economy, you know, doing two-hour stints delivering packages for Amazon, they're paid by a piece, a piece rate to do that. The fact that productivity is slow, that corporations aren't actually investing the way that they used to. I mean, you can look at all of these big measures and things are not looking good, even though we're supposedly at the height of a, of a recovery period. Um, you know, I think it's one of the most interesting things that's happened in recent years is that the economists are beginning to recognize what's going on because none of the other explanations that they might offer up for these challenges really hold water, right? I mean, it, it, when, when you look at it, all of this seems to point back to concentration. No, absolutely. And it has gotten to the point where uh, even, as you said, the, the economists uh, are recognizing that we have a problem, uh, which is quite, uh, that, that is an achievement in itself. Something I want to make, make clear here is like, th we are going to win. The, you know, we are going to break up Google Facebook and Amazon. We are going to take on these other powers. The issue at this point is not, you know, are we going to do it? You know, can we do it? We are going to do it. It's just a matter of when and exactly how. You know, the American people, when they wake up, when they see the problem in front of their face, when they see that fist that is bald right there, uh, we have awesome capacities to to respond you know working together uh you know just using our common sense because that's all we need to beat these people with their ideologies just our common sense and our ability to see the fist before us to see the facts before us at this moment of despair when people see these awesome concentrations of power the most important step we have taken and that is to recognize the problem once we have recognized the problem once we have woken up from that ideology it's you know i don't know when ultimate victory will be at hand but ultimate victory is in the future that's great. I, I, uh, I'm so, I'm glad you have that kind of confidence. And I, I have to say one of the most encouraging things in recent months has been this attention on the big tech companies on Google and Facebook and Amazon. Um, because for a long time, I feel like we, people had this understanding of like the bad monopolies, right? You could put your cable provider in there, your internet uh, service in there, you know, companies that, you know, really everyone hates, right? All the way around, they're just awful. Um, and then there were these sort of like good monopolies in a lot of people's eyes, Google being one, Amazon being another. And it's been so nice to see that that's finally breaking down, that people are, in fact, a lot of people are very nervous about the power that they have. And that there's this sense, I think, uh, that's beginning to drive a shift where people, you know, are sort of setting aside that consumer identity that is 
you know, held us back for so long and beginning to recognize how these companies ultimately govern us in a way um, and that it has everything to do with our livelihoods and our and our liberty. Um, I mean, it's really I, I guess I'm genuinely surprised that this has happened. I thought it would take a lot more work for the conversation to kind of turn on these guys. You know, having just lived through this because, you know, we were at, uh, you know, my open markets unit institute was until recently the open markets program at New America, which was a, a th is a think tank here in D.C. And, you know, we just lived through an experience in which uh, back in June uh, we s applauded this decision by the head of antitrust of the European Union, the decision that that person uh, brought, Margaret Vestager, against Google. We said, hey, this was a good decision, and American regulators should learn from this decision and improve on it, build on it. Uh, the, the result of that was within a couple days, my entire team was asked to leave New America. Uh, it was asked to leave New America because uh, Google, uh, a bunch of people, wasn't just one person, but a variety of people at Google brought real pressure to bear against the leadership in New America. That leadership buckled. Uh, we were shown the door. Uh, that ended up in the press, and one of the things that happened is just a phenomenal outpouring of support. I mean, just uh, way beyond anything we expected, way beyond any of the uh, what anything that the communications people that we had worked with had expected. And what that really illustrates is that there is an absolute hunger out there. There's one is there is real terror out there of these companies, but there's also a hunger to, to, of, among people to stand up to them. Now, where is that coming from? One of the things that is, is at play is uh, the you know the Facebook fake news story, the the Russian propaganda story. That's educated a whole lot of people. You know, another another issue is Amazon Whole Foods. Okay, Amazon, well, Amazon told us that uh, retail was dead, physical retail was dead. We didn't need to be in physical retail. You know, it's like the whole world was going to go virtual. Well, now all of a sudden they've made this sideways jump into the real world. And they seem to be intending to do a lot more of that. They're setting up stores all over the place. They're setting up stores inside of Kohl's, uh, department stores. You know, so you got Amazon owning Whole Foods. You got Amazon stores in a bunch of malls. You got Amazon inside of Kohl's. Where does it stop? Is Amazon going to control all of commerce online and all of commerce in the real world? I think suddenly people are saying, well, golly, maybe there's something else going on here. Maybe this isn't a pure technological play. Maybe this is actually just a monopoly play like we've seen before. And maybe if we don't do something about it soon, we're going to be in a world of hurt. Another thing is there's a growing concern among a bunch of companies about the power that Google has. You know, power not just over commerce, not just over our, our data, but actually over the, the newspapers that we rely on. Uh, the you know control over the news magazines that we rely on, uh, you know that you know Google and Facebook together uh, they control the f to a very large degree the flow of news between the, uh, the 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 publisher and the reader, between the reporter and the reader, the author and the reader. In America, we have never before allowed for uh, any couple of companies to have that kind of control over the flow of information from citizen to citizen that we have to see today. So people are seeing this in their lives and in all these different ways. And every time they wake up to one problem, it helps them see other problems. So it's a, it's a cumulative thing. And that's what makes a, a sudden change possible. 
because you know the uh, knowledge builds on knowledge awareness builds on awareness facts build on facts and what we're saying is in america today this awakening of the citizenry and of our leaders and it's we're not going back to sleep again i love that um sudden change is possible so looking ahead at, at the coming months and years what do you think is most important for us to do right now? I mean, if you were advising members of Congress uh, and if you're out talking to ordinary citizens who are uh, passionate about this issue and want to do something, you know, and all the people you talk to, what is it that we should be doing? What's the most important thing to have happen next? Yeah, I think the most important, you and I have talked about this some, is actually it's, it has to do with how we see ourselves. And we have to see ourselves as citizens foremost, not as consumers. For the last 35 years, really powerful people have tried to take us and put us in a box and call us consumers. They actually wrote that into the law. They scratched out back in 1982, they scratched out the word citizen, and they wrote in the word consumer into our antitrust law. And that changed both how we are seen by the law and how we see ourselves to a large degree. So the first thing we have to say is, I'm not a consumer, I am a citizen, I produce things, I produce labor, I produce goods, I produce ideas, and I will have open and free markets into which to sell my goods, my ideas, my labor. There will be competition for my goods, my ideas, for my labor, and there will be no intermediary standing between me and my neighbors telling us how to do business with one another, just the way Sam Adams and John Hancock said back in 1773. That's the first thing we have to do. Uh, the second thing is like for anyone who's sort of in a position of, of authority, a position of power, a position of leadership, this could be within your community, within your town, within your church, is just go out there and talk about this. You know, you don't have to figure out what the fixes are. There's going to be a thousand fixes. There's going to be 10,000 fixes. That's the beauty of antitrust law, of anti-monopoly laws. We have a, a, an immense number of, of tools that we can bring to bear. But what we have to do is see the problem and help our fellows see the problem. We have to make it safe for other people on the Hill on Capitol Hill to talk about this. So if you're on Capitol Hill and we have a number of people who are taking the leadership roles in this, they need to speak about it more and more and more and more powerfully, no matter who comes at them, no matter how hard the other folks come at them. Speak about it. And every time you speak about it, you make it easier for your fellows and your, you know, your neighbors to speak about it. And every time they speak about it, it makes it easier for you to speak about it. So admit we have a problem, talk about it, you know, make it normal, and we will fix it. One of the people in Congress who has been an outspoken leader on this issue early is Elizabeth Warren. And she gave a speech uh, back in the spring of 2016, the spring of last year. You've called it the most important speech by someone at that level uh, in 80 years on antitrust. Uh, it was widely covered. In Time Magazine's headline was, uh, Elizabeth Warren says Google, Apple, and Amazon snuff out competition. I actually thought one of the most radical parts of that speech went under the radar in some ways, which was how much Elizabeth Warren talked about markets. 
She opens the speech and she says, I love markets. Strong, healthy markets are a key to a strong, healthy America. And she talks about small businesses throughout that speech over and over again. And she ends, near the end of it, she says, competitive markets generate so many benefits on their own that the government's only role in those markets should be simple and structural, prevent cheating, protect taxpayers, and maintain competition. Do you think the left heard what she was saying? You know, here she is, the leader of you know, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And when we think about what the progressive wing is about, it's about uh, raising the minimum wage, about having a strong social safety net, about taxing the rich and, and, and making sure that that's redistributed out. All things that Elizabeth Warren very much strongly supports, I should say. But progressives for a long time have been more about sort of fixing what the economy does to people after the fact. And what Elizabeth Warren here is saying, we ought to structure the economy from the get-go in a way that actually allows people to have the liberty and, and the equality straight out of the very structure of the economy itself. Uh, do you think people heard that? I think a lot of people heard that. I think more people are hearing that every day. Part of what the Chicago schoolers did on, you know, on the right a generation ago, they kind of came up with this idea that markets are not so much things that people make in society, that they use laws and policies to make a, make a market, but that markets are these kind of forces that exist outside of society, that society exists within the marketplace. Now, a lot of folks on the left, a lot of well-meaning people, a lot of people who consider themselves liberals or progressives, have fallen for this lie that society exists within this thing called the market, that the market is like nature, that the market is, you know, like weather. And it's like, there is no such force out there that is the market. The markets are institutions that human beings make to regulate how human beings compete one with another. And if you structure a market well, it allows you to compete constructively, to you know actually bring new ideas and uh, uh, new techniques to, to 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 bear, so that we make more stuff for each other. But the other thing that markets do is markets are our pathway to freedom. If we structure a market well, in doing so, we provide liberty to ourselves, to our neighbors, to our children, to our families, to trade their labor in ways that ensure that they're not dependent on a boss, to uh, run a business or a farm, a, you know, an independent business or an independent farm, uh, without fear that some Brazilian monopolist or you know, some uh, giant combine is gonna come in and just put you out of work tomorrow, take away your property uh, at a whim. Uh, so markets are institutions that we make to provide us with liberty. And the left forgot that. Many people on the left, not all people, but many people on the left forgot that. And that's, in some ways, one of the most important things that people have to learn is that there is no such thing as a market that exists around us. Markets are things that we make to serve our fundamental interests. Barry, this has been a terrific conversation. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. 
While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. And once again, please help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Nick Stumo Langer. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Thank you.